0: Good morning, everybody. How is everybody doing? I'm back from vacation and I'm ready to go. It was a, it was a great time. Got a chance to relax. And uh, sorry I wasn't here for the for the dance family and, and for uh, the celebration of Luisa's life. And but I know you guys were in our thoughts and our prayers. Um, I would ask that you keep my father-in-law Jim and my mother-in-law Gail in your prayers as you go through the coming days. Uh, Jim and Gail aren't here today. His brother uh, has been battling cancer and some other things and while we were on vacation uh, he had to have an emergency surgery and when they opened him up the the cancer was just spread all over and so he's only got maybe 24 to 48 hours so they're at the hospital today with him so if you could keep uh, uh, Jim and Gail Glover and and, uh, John Glover his his brother and his extended family in your prayers I know that they would greatly appreciate that Uh, but as we think about uh, today's lesson how small I felt anybody here ever go uh, hunting or anybody here ever uh, stand beside the power of the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. You know, I think about uh, in times gone by, uh, you know, I used to hunt. I haven't really hunted in a while, but we used to go hunting all the time. When, after I got married, I met Christy, never even shot a gun. Well, Jim was a big hunter, you know, and, and he taught me. He's like, well, if you want to learn hunting, I'll teach you. Next thing I know, I got a whole armory at my house and uh, between the bows and the guns and everything else. But I tell you what, it's the weirdest thing. You go out there, you know, in the early in the morning, before the sun arises. You're in the woods maybe 45 minutes to an hour before the sun even comes up. And you walk into your spot with a flashlight, and then you sit down, you shut off the light, and you just be quiet. You just wait. Anybody here ever hunts? You know what I'm talking about? And so you're, you're there, right? And as you're there, you're sitting in the woods. It's pitch black. And there's nothing, and you just have a sense of just smallness. You feel small. You feel vulnerable, right? Almost powerless. Sure, you're holding the shotgun in your hand, but yet you can't see anything, right? But you can hear the woods coming to life all around you. And it's the strangest feeling if you've never actually had that feeling before. Well, this past week, we were uh, on vacation. We are down in North Myrtle Beach, and as we're in North Myrtle Beach, we're, uh, we're sitting there. And as we're sitting there and walking up and down the coastline and and, you know, splashing around in the ocean a little bit. There's too many things. I know where I stand in the food chain, so I don't go too far out. I don't venture too far out. Plus, I can't swim, so you kind of put two and two together. And so as I'm standing there, you're only in like maybe three feet, four or five feet of water. And the power of those waves, right? And when you're standing there and you're looking out and you're feeling the power of the waves, the waves, it just has a way of just making you feel small, making you feel almost insignificant, Powerless, if you will, and so I, I just wonder how many times in life you've maybe stood set, stood next to something in God's creation, and you just literally just felt small or insignificant. And so I think about the ocean, and, the, and today's lesson is going to go going to be on on the Book of Job, chapter thirty-eight, more specifically, because as I was sitting there, I was thinking about some of the passages. Uh, that speak about the ocean, that speak about how God uh, had set the border, had, set, had, had, had put the doors in place in order that the ocean, the waves, the power of the sea had a boundary and that it couldn't cross over that boundary. And so I think about, uh, you know, in ancient times, I think about the sea, I think about the oceans, I think about uh, even in the medieval times, they've always thought of the ocean Uh, as something to be feared. And most of mankind desperately feared the sea. They looked at it as a devouring monster. I love watching these Viking shows. And these Viking shows, they know that once they get out on the sea and the sea starts to rage, they know that... Uh, Their life is literally in God's hands at that moment because uh, back then they didn't have the boats and the size and the technology that we have now. They weren't able to see the storms coming until it was too late. And so I just think about all of these different things. I thought about how uh, how it must have been a, a constant worry, a constant place of sorrow thinking about the sea. Uh, thinking about the sudden death that would come upon them. You remember even Jesus' disciples, right? They're on the Sea of Galilee. It's not even the ocean. It's, it's still big, right? And they have some powerful storms be, just because of the, uh, the topography. But, but you think about that. They, the, the storm starts to, starts to brew around them. The waves start to uh, crash into their little boat. And they say, Lord, we're dying here. Do you not, do you not fear? Are you not going to wake up? You know, we're going to perish. And so you could see how they had a very different view of the sea back then than maybe we do today because of modern technology and things that we have. But brethren, I'm just here to say that this morning, as I was sitting in my beach chair, I'm starting to think about Job and his conversation that he had with his friends. But more specifically, chapter 38. When I think of chapter 38 and verses 8 through 11 that are on the screen behind me, we're pretty much just going to be in Job today. So if you did want to open up there, you could follow along. But in Job chapter 38, and verses 8 through 11, I want you to see here, because we're going to look at and think about this conversation that Job has with his friends, but more specifically, how God, he enters into the picture. And God's thunder, he speaks here in verses 8 through 11. Job 38, 8 through 11 says this, "...who enclosed, who enclosed the sea <laughs> with the doors?" When bursting forth it went out from the womb, when I made a cloud its garment and, a, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and I set a bolt in doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. You think about uh, during the first 31 chapters of the book of Job, you see that uh, Job, uh, Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar, had all confidently spoke about the ways of God. If you've never wrote, uh, read this book, it's, it's, it's a great book to read. Uh, and some of the most awe-inspiring chapters are that chapters 38 through 41 that we see in Scripture. But another part of that conversation that came to mind in the book of Job uh, was when Job had asserted that God has, God has been treating him unfairly. And so in Job chapters 32 through 37, uh, after Job had won the debates... This whole time he's debating with three of his friends uh, and they say there there must have been sin in your life to bring about this great calamity. And that it wasn't something new because even as you go on through Jewish history, many of them always thought that uh, calamity came upon them in their lives because of some sin in their lives. And they had this thought process even going all the way back to Job. And so Job maintained his righteousness, but so much so that he became a little proud and a little self-righteous. And he starts to question God in a way that becomes a little dangerous. And so in chapters 32 through 37, one of the other friends, his name was Elihu. And Elihu was just sitting there listening because he was the younger of the friends. And he was listening to them have these conversations, have this debate back and forth, if you will. And Elihu becomes angry after it's apparent that Job wins the argument because he becomes angry with his three friends that they were falsely accusing Job of having sinned against God to bring about such unjustness, to bring about such calamity uh, that he was going through. But then Elihu, he wasn't just angry with those three friends, he also became angry with Job. Because as the argument wore on, Job increasingly was intent on justifying himself rather than justifying God. And so Elihu, he he correctly points out that Job, he's becoming dangerously close in accusing God of being unjust. And so in this next passage of scripture on the screen behind me, in Job chapter 31 and verse 35, it says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. And notice what he says next. Let my accuser, let my heavenly accuser put his indictment in writing." Do you see what he's doing here? He's challenging God because he feels like he's been unjustly treated. And Job, he claims, his claims seem to accuse God of falling asleep at the wheel. As God is governing the universe, uh, he must have fallen asleep at the wheel in order for me to, to suffer such divine neglect. And you see, brethren, that Job is essentially appealing to God for justice, and dare I say an apology. You see, brethren, in Job's chapter thirty-one through uh, 40, 38 through 41, all of a sudden, God shows up on the scene. And you see here that there are some, these are some of the most awe-inspiring chapters of the Bible. When you read chapters 38 through 41, and Job, uh, or God, begins to question Job. God speaks to Job, and he says, he speaks to him not with answers to Job's questions, but he comes to Job with his own questions and says, why don't you answer me? And so you understand here, brethren, rather God turns it around and God does the questioning and he wants Job to answer him. And God shows him and he reminds Job of God's power and his majesty. Job is speechless towards the end of God's questioning and he admits that he has no answers as we get to around chapter 40 and the beginning of uh, uh, Job chapter 40. God continues to question him until he repents. You see, in, uh, in Job chapter 42, and verse 5 through 6, Job, the man who thought he knew God, now says this, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Job 42, 5 and 6. Brothers and sisters, through Job's suffering, through his suffering, Job goes from a limited understanding of God to a life-changing experience of the greatness, of the majesty and the power of God. He also experiences God's love and grace once he retracts his appeal For God to come to stand before him and to give an account of why Job is allowed to suffer, once he retracts that appeal, we see that he repents in dust and ashes in Acts chapter 42, around 5 and 6. And what is the point of that? The point is that he also experiences God's love and his grace because he's more than doubly blessed at the end than he was in the beginning. And you see, brethren, today we're going to look at a couple different aspects of Job chapter 38. The first aspect that I want us to look at is that if we feel small, if we feel small compared to the power of the vast oceans, the vast wilderness, and the universe, how much smaller or insignificant should we feel before our almighty, powerful God? You see, brethren, the second thing I want us to look at here this morning is that In conjunction with this story of Job, we need to stay humble. We need to stay humble and remember that God is righteous, that he's supreme, and that he is worthy of worship. And in whatever he chooses to do, that God's judgments are not to be questioned by fallible men. You see, brothers and sisters, even if a blameless man like Job, and he was blameless like we learn about in Job chapter 1 and verse 1. He was blameless in the, in the sight of God, but even a blameless man needs to repent when he becomes a little too proud and self-righteous. You see, brothers and sisters, in Job chapter 38 and verses 1 through 3, what do we learn? We first learn that God is sovereign and not man. It's an incredible scene because Job has responded pretty well in his suffering. But as the questioning and as the debate with his friends continue on, he has also, he makes some good points, but he starts to become bold in his statements. He starts to kind of take on the mindset that maybe, just maybe, I have been unjustly treated because I am a righteous man. And maybe God does need to answer me and need to come before me and give an account, so to speak. You see, brothers and sisters, if you've never read Job, it is a great read, and I encourage you to read it. And it's as if Job expects God to show up. It's as if he expects him to show up with his tail between his legs and offer some form of an apology to Job. That's where the conversation is going. That's where Job's mindset is going as you get uh, through chapter 30, about 31. And that's why even Elihu, the youngest of the friends, remains silent the entire time. But then he speaks up and he rebukes his three friends for falsely accusing Job. But he rebukes Job for his the proudness and the self righteousness that he had in his mind that caused him to sin against God. And you're going to see what God says here momentarily. And so God had different plans. He didn't plan on showing up with his tail between his legs and offering apology. God doesn't arrive in some small voice. It says in verse 1 that God arrives in a whirlwind. Brethren, this whirlwind wasn't one of those little harmless dust devils. You guys ever see one of those dust devils, right, that's really harmless? Looks cool, but it's harmless? No, God shows up in a whirlwind. I'm pretty sure it's probably some type of storm. The grounds probably quaked. The thunder probably roared. And God shows up on the scene. Brethren, you see this. And if you've ever been inside of a storm, if you've ever lived in areas of the country where storms are more prevalent, not so much like we get here in Michigan, you know, we get those little baby storms. Well, for a moment, I've lived in Tennessee, and for a few years, I lived in Iowa, and those storms, I'm here to tell you, are much more ferocious than the storms we get around here. And when you're in the midst of one of those major storms, you feel small. You feel kind of helpless, powerless, if you will. Can you imagine the whirlwind? You guys remember when Elijah, when God appeared to Elijah, when he was praying and when he was calling on God and saying, I'm the last one left, when he was fleeing for, for his life um, from, uh, from Ahab's wife? And we see how God came and the, and the winds blew and the thunder quaked and the, and the, and the earth shook. Brethren, I can imagine... This is what uh, Job is seeing. And so God makes another statement, brethren, because God makes a statement before he even says a word. But he makes another statement when he begins to rebuke Job. Look at this, next, this first passage of Scripture in uh, Job 38, verse 1 through 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Can you imagine this conversation? Job's probably looking around and saying, is, is he talking to somebody else? I hope he's talking to somebody else. Because almighty, imagine, the almighty powerful God is now before him and says, enough is enough. I'm through listening to your accusations. And so, brethren, God says Job's words have brought darkness and not light's. And that, his, that he has spoken foolishly. Can you imagine this conversation? Can you imagine standing before God and having a, a, the conversation when God says, Hey, I'm about to take the kid gloves off? I'm about to take the kid gloves off, and we're going to have a conversation man to man. You might want to gird yourself up. You might want to brace yourself for it. You see, brethren, God, He comes and He, in over several chapters and two long speeches, He asks over 60 questions. Of Job. He wants to see what type of understanding that he has. Because if you don't have understanding of things you can see with your eyes, how then can you question me about things that you have no understanding about? When you barely understand the things you can see. You see, brethren, before we get to them, we need to ask ourselves, before we get to chapter 38, we really need to ask ourselves, why was God so confrontational? I mean, after all, Job is suffering, is he not? I mean, he's suffering, and he did say some good things as well. It wasn't all bad. But where is the God that loves you? Where is the God that loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? You know that sales pitch that many of us hear, hear about in American Christianity. Where's that God that loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? God knows, brethren, that that Job's greatest need is not a a tender touch, but Job's greatest need was to have a right view of God. To have a right view of God. You remember the Monarchy versus Democracy uh, sermon a couple weeks ago? We need to have a right view of God. God knows that all the compassion in the world would be useless if Job continues to hold on to a wrong understanding of God... And his standing before God. You see, brethren, that's something we need to remember. We need to remember that God is big, mighty, and powerful, and we are insignificant. God is big and righteous and supreme, and we are small in his sights. Brothers and sisters, therefore God knows that the most uh, loving action that he could take is to show Job who he is. To show Job the power and the majesty and the understanding and the wisdom that God has. You see brethren, we need to heed God's example here. We need to heed God's example here today because aren't there atheists, agnostics, even sadly some even sadly even some Christians who proudly love to sit in judgment of God? Well, if there's a God, why does fill in the blank, right? There's lots of people who like to sit in judgment of God. Uh, In times of calamity, in times of trouble. And many throughout time have demanded that God God almost justify himself before his creation. Can you imagine that conversation? When you start to have that thought process, I want you to think of the book of Job. Brethren, unfortunately, some try to even win over those people by manipulating the gospel so much so that they fit the gospel to what they want to hear. You see, brothers and sisters, We must understand that a watered down God is no God at all. And that a watered down gospel void of righteousness and justice is no real gospel at all. Rather than genuine conversion and godliness, it needs to begin with humility. It It needs to begin with humbly acknowledging God as Lord and we as merely feeble sinners. Weak and small and feeble sinners. Brothers and sisters have said we must humbly believe, trust, and obey. That's the gospel, right? We have to. That's the that's the biblical faith that we're constantly talking about. We desperately need to believe and communicate that God is, that God is sovereign and man is not. The second truth that I want us to look at as we consider Job's chapter thirty-eight is in verses four through fifteen. In verses 4 through 15, we start to see that God starts to lean into the first four days of the creation week. And he brilliantly demonstrates both his glory as well as his wisdom, as well as Job's utter weakness and lack of understanding of the things that he could see. In verses 4 through 7, they describe the creation of the world itself using construction language. God asks Job, he says, Job, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? God's initial question takes, Job's, takes Job all the way back when God was the master builder, when he laid the foundation of the earth, when he marked off its dimensions, and when he stretched a measuring line across the globe. You know what that is, don't you? It's the equator. We could talk a long time about the genius that we find in the details of creation, but that's not what we're here for today. Brethren, it is all demonst- all of this information demonstrates that God's wisdom is far beyond our own. Then you get to Job 38, verses 8 through 11. And he moves to day three of the creation week. And as he moves to day three of the creation week, when God separated dry land from the sea, God sarcastically asks Job, he says, Were you the one who shut in the sea with the doors? You see, brethren, the oceans are incredibly powerful. As I mentioned earlier, you just kind of wade out into the water just a few feet. And those little two-foot, three-foot waves start to hit you. They'll knock you on your butt. Just that little bit of water and the power that is in it, it is so really just amazing. And that is not even the wrath of the sea. That's just the normal waves rolling in. You guys remember what happened in Indonesia many years ago when that tsunami happened and 230,000 people lost their lives? Why? Because of the power and the might of the sea. You see, brethren, in the grand scheme of much of God's creation, the vast seas, the wilderness, the universe, how small are we really? In relation to God's creation and the power of his creation that he controls in the palm of his hand. You see, brothers and sisters, Job knew that he had no ability to control these oceans. He knew that he did not uh, set the boundaries for these oceans. And he didn't really even understand the questions that God was asking him. But on the third day of creation, God commanded the oceans, This far you may go, but God says no further. And that is exactly what we see. They come in a certain amount of high tide and low tide, and they immediately go back to where they came from. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12, it states that God has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and their immense power fits in the palm of his hand. What is the point? The point is that God is strong, and the obvious implication here is that who are you, Job? And who are we to sit in judgment of God and to defend and to demand anything? from a holy and righteous God. You see, brothers and sisters, it's utterly absurd that we would imagine that we have the right or authority to demand anything of a holy and righteous God. The third thing that we want to look at here this morning, and the third uh, truth that God communicates in chapter 38, is that God knows every detail of his creation. And so in verses 16 through 24, the sarcasm continues as God drives home how little Job actually knows. Notice what this next passage says in verses 16 through 18 of Job chapter 38. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me, Job, do you know all these things? You see, brethren, God in verses 16 through 18, he points out Job's ignorance. He points out his ignorance of what would be considered the most remote places of the earth. In Job's day, no one had ever seen the bottom of the ocean. I mean, things were obviously vastly different thousands of years ago than they are today. Of course, we know a lot more about the depths of the ocean. As we were sitting there and asking all these questions, me, uh, Christy's mom, and Christy on the balcony, as we're staring out over the ocean, man, I wonder how far it is. You know, you could see out into the horizon, and you wonder why they thought that you just go so far and you fall off the end? Because that's what it looks like. It's just like a line that just goes across. Well, that's about three miles out, if you want to know. And if you think about, like, the depths of the sea, 38,000 feet, Right? 38,000 feet almost 7 miles down. And God asked Job, "Hey, were you have you ever walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you ever been there?" And so, brethren, when you look at all of this information, and we see that no one in Job's day would have been able to answer these questions. They never explored the ocean. And of course, we have a lot more information today because we have a lot more technology. When we're constantly discovering new species and understandings about the ocean. Even with all of our technology and all of our knowledge, we still have only maybe researched maybe 20-25% of the seas, of the oceans. There's still so much we don't know, even with all of our knowledge and all of our technology. In verse 18, uh, God asks if Job comprehends the scale of the earth. Well, brethren, of course, we understand the massiveness uh, of the earth. Why? Because we have technology and knowledge. But Job didn't have these things in his day. He didn't have the ability to understand. He didn't have, they didn't have uh, the, 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 the telescopes and, and all the different things that are and in, in, in being able to go up into space and see the earth and uh, all the measurements and all the tools that we have. To Job, the oceans would have seemed vast and endless, kind of like the universe seems vast and endless even to us still today. Oh, sure, we have telescopes and we can look out into outer space. But in the grand scheme of things, there's still very little we know about what's out there. There's still very little we know about God's creation. And most of what we know, we've only learned in the last 300 years. And you're talking about somebody who lived thousands of years ago. In Job chapter 38 and verses 23 through 24, God challenges Job's knowledge of the weather. Again, brethren... We know a lot more today than Job did during his day about the weather. Even the weathermen, with all of our computer uh, systems and all of our powerful computer systems that can make uh, uh, make predictions, they're still wrong more than they're right. I was down on vacation and it was supposed to thunderstorm 50, 60 percent every day, and I think it rained twice. But every day w- there was the chance of thunderstorms, and every time this thunderstorm would come, and it would just dissipate before it ever even got to us. So even with our computer models and and all of our technology, the weathermen are still wrong more than they are right, Brethren, there are so many factors that affect the weather, and God's design of it is all truly incredible. He created a system that waters and feeds the earth, that provides everything that we need for life to be able to flourish on this planet. And he's asking Job all these detailed questions to see exactly what he understands, and he can't answer these questions Brethren, if we know so little about the things that we can see, how can we think that we can comprehend the purposes of an infinite God? You see, brethren, we can't. There we must stand in humility. We must stand with humility and not in judgments. I want you to see this next aspect of Scripture. In Job chapter 38 and verses 25 through 30, we're going to see that God's purposes extend beyond uh, mankind. In Job 38, starting in verse 25, the scriptures tell us, Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorms? To water a land where no one lives, and uninhabited deserts To satisfy a desolate wasteland and to make it sprout grass. Does the rain have a father? Whose father, who fathers the dr- drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? And when the waters become hard as stone when the surfaces of the deep is frozen. You see, brethren, you look at that simple passage of Scripture, this passage continues to focus on the weather, but it focuses on how God blesses the desert even with rain. Those, there, there were not many people who lived for very long in desert regions back in Job's Day. Why? Because they didn't have the technology. And so they depended on the rain from God in order to water this desolate place. But we now have technology to where people can live in desert regions. Why? Because we can put in vast water systems. And we have all of the technology in order to live in some of the most remotest parts of the earth. But they didn't have those things back then. And so even though no one may live in the desert places today, God, or many people do, God has always watered those deserted places desert places. He's always uh, watered and cared for those most remote places of the earth. Why? So the rest of the the creation can flourish. You see, brethren, the point is that God cares for everything that he has made, not not just the people that it affects. Therefore, brethren, we are not the center of the universe. You know, we're not the center of the universe, and God does not exist to serve us. His purpose and his glory go well beyond us. But I wonder how many times we know people who believe that they're the center of the universe. You see, brethren, it's another humbling reminder because too many of us in the world like to think that everything revolves around us. I mean, you guys have heard even Christian slogans that say, you matter to God. Well, which appeals to the idea that I'm what actually matters. And certainly, yes, we matter to God, but the most important person that matters to God is God. And if God loves anybody more than himself, well, then he's an idolater. You see, brethren, God reminds us that we are not the center of the universe, but he is. And the only way to see God, the only way to see myself, the only way to see the world correctly is with that perspective, that God's purposes extend beyond mankind. So what's the conclusion here today as I close this sermon down? First and foremost, brethren, that the first and central message is that God is big and we are small. I realize that this is not earth-shattering, that God is big and that we are small. But like Job and his friends, how many of us tend to get a little too big for our britches? You guys have heard that, right? Too big for our pants, too big for our britches. Too many of us like to you know, have a puffed-up puffed up view of ourselves, thinking that the world revolves around us and that we have a say in everything. Brethren, we begin to think that not only the world revolves around us, but so do all other aspects of life. If God's purposes for this, for this planet, if God's purposes for our lives was a thousand-piece puzzle, we'd have the knowledge that equates to one piece. You see, brothers and sisters, God's knowledge and God's power so far it goes so far beyond us that we can't even comprehend. Job was unable to comprehend the things that God was asking him. And he says, if you can even answer some of these simple questions of what I have done, who are you to question me and to try to stand in judgment of me? Who are you to call me into your presence to give an account of what I may or may not have let done or let happen? And so, brethren, the more you live and you accept the reality that God is almighty, he's all powerful, and that he has your best interest at heart, the greater your peace, your joy, and your hope will be. Because yes, Job suffered for a period of time. But God said, because you retracted your appeal, because you have repented in dust and ashes, I, in my loving grace, will bless you abundantly. And we know that in the end he was doubly blessed. So, brethren, God still sits in judgment over us and not us over him. One of the most important features of God's speech in chapters 38 through 41 is the fact that he does not, it's not what he says, but it's actually what he does not say. Specifically, God never gives Job an explanation as to why he allowed Job to suffer. He never walks Job through the logics of his choice. Instead, he simply tells Job, I am God and you're not. I am God, and you are not. I have infinite understanding, and you know very little. So how dare you question me? Brethren, the only way that you will have rest and joy is if you see God as he is in chapters 38 through 41, all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever present And we need to understand that we are to walk humbly before Almighty God. So today, let's see God in all his power and his glory. Today, let's see ourselves as how small we really are, not just in in the face of his creation, of the great power and vastness of the oceans and the wilderness and the universe, but to uh, to really fully accept and understand how small we are when it comes to Almighty God. So brethren, if you ever feel... If you ever begin to feel a little bit too, uh, a little bit too haughty, if you ever begin to, to think a little too much of yourself, I want you to think about this, this book, the Book of Job. I want you to think of this conversation that God has with Job. and I want you to remember who you are. I want you to remember your place before our Almighty God. And so remember, brethren, that suffering is not always a result of sin. And righteousness, and even the righteous can and do suffer. Even when you, even when left to Satan, children of God are not forsaken. They are surrounded by God's love. And lastly, remember that human philosophy oftentimes it what it falls short. For the ways of a man are not within himself. So the idea that I wanted to put before you here this morning is these are the thoughts that I was kind of having as I was sitting in my beach chair. I was thinking about how God's creation, how he made all these things, and I'm Googling all these different questions that I had about the ocean and the sea and where it is and how all these different things happen. And as I'm getting these answers, I start to think about Job's chapter 38 through 41. I think about what all the scriptures say about uh, how... We are without excuse, Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. We're without excuse because God has made himself known to us. If only we will seek him out. You see, brethren, I want us to realize that too many times, because of the nation in which we live, because of the riches that we have, we begin to think a little too highly of ourselves. And I want us to remember that in the grand scheme of creation, in the grand scheme of God's purposes and his plan, We are simply small and really, truly insignificant. Are we made in the image of God? Yes. Did God give us dominion over his his creation? Yes. But we still must know our place. We must know our place and understand that even though we have dominion over the creation, there's still so many things that are so much more powerful than us. And that really, if we cannot even understand barely the things that we see... How can we understand the purposes of an infinite and almighty God? Brothers and sisters, if you're hearing this message today, and you are not a child of God, but you wish to to come under God's protection, you wish to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you're willing to confess that here this morning, that's all you need to begin your journey with God. That's all you need to go down into the waters of baptism, to have your sins washed away, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, because God then will add you to his kingdom. But maybe you're here today and you've been struggling. Maybe you haven't been in worship for a while. Maybe you haven't even been practicing your faith for a while, but you're here today and you want to repent, and you want to to get back to serving God, and you want to be restored. You can come forward. The elders will pray with you, and they'll sit down with you and talk to you to help you to have a deeper stronger more committed faith. If those are if that is you here this morning, come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.